Thank you, Lord. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9. I'm going to have to call some of you out this morning, though. You people are moving around. They're trying to mess with my head. Brian, what are you doing sitting over there? You and Michelle are supposed to be back there. And Chandra, what are you doing back there? You're supposed to be up here. They're all just trying to mess me up. And it's not hard. And I don't need any help. Acts chapter number 9. I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, An Unlikely Conversion. In the 18th century, two brilliant lawyers, Sir George Lyttelton and Gilbert West, attended Oxford together. These lawyers came to the conclusion that Christianity rested on two two mighty pillars, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So as unbelievers, they decided to devote their energies to proving the falsehood of Christianity by disproving the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So Gilbert West agreed to write a book refuting the resurrection, and Lord Lyttelton agreed to write one refuting the conversion of Saul. After some time, the two lawyers met together to discuss their progress, and one of them said to the other, I'm afraid I have a confession to make. He says, I've been looking at the evidence for this story, and I've begun to think that maybe there is something to it. After all, the other said, well, the same thing has happened to me, but let's keep on investigating these stories and see where it leads. Both men persevered in their task and they finally produced their books. What was their conclusion? On the basis of the evidence found in the New Testament, Gilbert West proved the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Lyttelton proved the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. These brilliant lawyers, using all their legal skills, could not refute the truth of Christianity. And as a result of their studies, both were converted and became believers in Christ. There's nothing quite as powerful as a good conversion story. The story of how a person came to know Jesus Christ... Luke seems to understand this because he gives us three different renditions, three different accounts of Saul's conversion. We see it here in Acts chapter 9. He repeats it again in Acts chapter 22, and he repeats it once again in Acts chapter 26. And Saul, or Paul's conversion, is without a doubt one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the gospel. A dramatic conversion story is good material for making an interesting personal testimony. An unusual and dramatic conversion still occur, although they are in the minority. Most people come to Christ with all, without all the drama that's associated with Saul's conversion. This morning's message is going to cover three simple points. They're in the outline in your bulletin this morning. They're in the introduction of the message. Three simple points that anyone can use to give their testimony. 
In fact, we're going to be having a testimony service in the evening service this evening, and I'm looking for anybody who would be willing to give their testimony three to five minutes about how they were saved. I want everybody to use that very simple format. Tell them about your life before you met Christ, sparing all the gory details. Secondly, tell them what brought you to the point of decision. And finally, tell them how your life has changed. Be willing to do that. I would love for you to tell me so after the service. Anyone who's willing, we'll have a mic down on both sides this evening. And anyone who'd like to give their testimony certainly may. Let's look at Paul's testimony this morning as our example. Now, first of all, who he was <clears throat> before he was saved. It says in verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Two things we're going to note about Paul in his past. First, he's a passionate persecutor of the church. Luke has already mentioned Saul three times as a bitter opponent of Christ and of his church. And today's text reintroduces Saul by saying he was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's rather interesting that a colorful description is given here of breathing out threats. In other words, every time he took a breath, he was uttering another threat against the followers of Jesus Christ. He was not only a persecutor of the church, he was a proud Pharisee. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul describes himself this way. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a distinguished tribe in Israel in that she gave Israel her first king, also a man by the name of Saul. Paul was also a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's telling them that he was to be distinguished from those who were from a Greek background, the Hellenistic Jews. He was a Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew. He grew up as a Jew. He also tells them that concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. He says, among an elite people, the people of Israel, that he was an even more elite. He was of an elite sect, the Pharisees, who were noted for their scrupulous keeping of the law. And as an Orthodox Jew, as well as a Pharisee, Saul saw this sect of the Nazarene as a serious threat to the nation of Israel and also a great deviation from the true religion of Jehovah. Saul no doubtedly thought of himself as a defender of Israel, perhaps even seeking to prepare the nation for the coming Messiah. Not content to just rout out the, the Jews who were in Jerusalem, he sought permission from the high priest to go to Damascus. He wanted those who were fleeing from Jerusalem to Damascus to be found and carried away before the, this plot could be carried out into yet another city. Here's a great example of the fact that you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. It's interesting to note how Christians were described here. 
Saul wanted to go after those who were of the way. The church was known as the people of the way because Jesus had said about himself in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. This phrase occurs some half a dozen times in the book of Acts, and it seems to be unique in that it seems to be the way that believers referred to themselves. The term Christian did not occur until Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 in the city of Antioch, and it was applied by their enemies. Secondly, what happened to change his life? Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round about him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. And they laid him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. First of all, I want you to see something that's very important about his conversion and anyone's conversion, and that is, first of all, it is a result of a divine initiative. One thing that Paul's conversion demonstrates is the relentless pursuit of, of Christ. We are saved not because we sought Christ, but because he sought us. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. No matter what we may think, God is the initiator in our relationship. It is the Lord who put people in your life to share the truth with you. And it is God who draws you to him. You do not seek God until he first draws you. The elements of the Damascus Road experience clearly demonstrate that Christ orchestrated the confrontation from the beginning to the end. Everything about Saul's conversion came from God. He was not searching for God. He was not searching for salvation. Saul would have told you that he was already one of God's chosen people. Second notice, it includes a personal encounter with Christ. There is a sudden blindness and an audible voice. But there is also the psychological shock for Paul of having his entire belief system undone in an instant. Everything He believed proven wrong. Saul is now confronted by the very God that he sought to defend. In verse 4, the the voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? By this rather pointed question, the Lord is not trying to gain information. Rather, he wanted Saul to consider 
what it was that he was doing. These words must have caused Saul some great confusion because he knew that what he was hearing was the voice of God. And he knew that he had been persecuting the Christians, not God. In fact, Saul thought of his actions against the Christians as service to and worship of God. Why was God then say that he was persecuting him? In confusion, Paul responded in verse 5 by saying, Who are you, Lord? I'm sure he was thinking, but, but I thought I was pleasing you, so why are you rebuking me? And then the voice said in the second part of verse 5, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It goes on to say in the last part of verse 5, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad was a stick, a stick that was used to poke an oxen in order to get him to move. Sometimes the ox would kick, kick up his heels at the stick. But such a response, of course, was not only pointless, but it was painful if he kicked the goad. The goads in Saul's life, I think, included Stephen's death and the testimony of him as he prayed in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. These goads kept on prodding the persecutor, and in moments of honesty must have caused Saul to, to wonder if his attacks against the church were really just. He had to have known at some level that he was wrong. But up until this point, he was not willing to repent. He was undoubtedly oppressed by guilt, but he silenced his conscience by doing even more terrible things in persecuting the saints. One clear implication of this experience of Saul is that every saved person must have a personal conversion experience, a personal encounter with Christ. You may or may not be able to tell me the exact month, the exact day, or the exact hour that you were saved. But you must know that it happened. You must be able to point back to a point in time in which you know that you believed. Salvation is not a group experience. It may happen in a group, such as Peter's preaching at Pentecost, but every individual there was saved because of a personal encounter with Christ. My question for you this morning would be, have you had such a personal encounter with Christ? It led also <clears throat> to conviction of sin, verse 9. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. In response to this traumatic revelation, Saul didn't eat or drink for three days. It was probably not because on some conscious level Paul said, you know, I think I need to fast and pray. I believe that it is evidence of a person in deep mourning, a person who 
is like unto someone who is mourning over the death of a loved one. In mourning of the revelation of his sin, he lost even his desire for food and for drink. The story of our conversion may not be as dramatic as Saul's, yet it had the same effect to convict us of sin, to break our dependence upon ourselves, and to bring us to Christ for salvation. The last thing that we see is a commitment <clears throat> to the Lordship of Christ. Saul's next question given in verse 6 is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus responds in the, later part, the latter part of that verse by saying, Arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. This is the very point at which most Christians fail and remain unproductive because they never get around to asking God, what do you want me to do? Saul asked for instructions immediately after his conversion. The question is not whether Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is Lord, but whether we are submissive to his lordship. There's been much debate among the commentators as to what really happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. I like what A.T. Robertson wrote about it many, many years ago. He said, it has been urged that Paul had an epileptic fit, that he experienced a sunstroke, that he fell off his horse to the ground and had a nightmare, and that he was blinded by a flash of lightning, that he imagined he saw Jesus as a result of a highly wrought emotional experience or that he deliberately renounced Judaism because of his growing conviction that the disciples were right. But the conversion of Paul cannot be accounted for except by Paul's own interpretation of the change that it made in him. He saw Jesus, and he surrendered to him. The experience ends in verse 7 by revealing that those who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Paul, blinded by the experience, according to the verse 8, had to be led by the hand into the city of Damascus. Third, <clears throat> how was he changed? It's hard to <clears throat> help you to understand just how traumatic a change this was. The closest illustration I can think of would be for us a few years ago to have heard that Saddam Hussein got saved, that he renounced Islam, and that he had traveled to Jerusalem so that he might receive instruction about how he might become a better Christian. And we would all say, oh yeah, I believe that. That's about how this struck those who knew Paul. Saul became Paul, and his life was dramatically changed. Paul helps us to understand that this is a, a principle that's true for everyone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Paul is giving us more than just a theological principle. He is speaking from personal experience. Over and over in his epistles, Paul spoke of salvation in terms of radical change. He spoke of it as a change from darkness to light in Colossians chapter 1. As a change from death to life in Ephesians chapter 2. And of putting off the old and putting on the new in Colossians chapter 3. But however you phrase it, genuine salvation must include deep and abiding personal change. Salvation is a transformation, not a transition. It is a miraculous, dramatic reversal of one's beliefs and then of one's behavior. Paul had a new allegiance, a new affection, and a new assignment. His life was forever changed and would never be the same. Has your life seen that kind of change? In a transformed life, brokenness is a prelude to filling. Now there was a certain disciple, verse 10, at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas, For one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard of many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Verse 17 tells us that Ananias went to the house and he entered in and he placed his hands on Paul and he said, Brother Saul. That must have thrilled Saul's heart to hear those words of forgiveness. Without a doubt, Ananias knew individuals personally, men and women, who had been in prison, maybe even killed, because of this very man. Perhaps in his pocket he held a warrant on which Ananias' name was written. And Ananias was given the privilege of going A man whose name means God is gracious, extended forgiveness to him because we are a part of the same body and brothers in Christ. Although we never hear of Ananias again, I believe he is one of the great heroes of the Bible. With his hands still on Saul, he went on to say in verse 17, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight. And then I want you to underline this next phrase in your Bible, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. Saul's conversion experience reminds us that it is not enough to be broken before God. Although that is necessary. God's desire is to use that brokenness 
as a means of filling us with His Spirit, which is essential in living the Christian life. We see that a transformed life leads to identification with His church. And He arose and was baptized. And when He had received food, He was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. One of the evidences of the reality of Saul's conversion was his immediate identification with the church of Damascus. Perhaps nowhere else is the radical change in Paul's life more apparent than his attitude toward those who were his enemies. Previously, Saul had sought them out to persecute them, even kill them. But now he sought them out to worship and fellowship with them. Saul, who was the opponent of Christianity, became the proponent of Christianity. And he who had hated Christ now proclaimed him. Transformed life, lastly, results in getting involved in serving the Lord. Immediately, he preached preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who came to destroy those who, were called, who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Saul wasted no time in getting to work. He went from one Damascus synagogue to another preaching Jesus. We know from Galatians chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 that Saul did not stay long in Damascus. He went to the desert of Arabia, and there he was alone with God. Had Luke included this in his story, Galatians 1.17 would have fit between Acts chapter 9 verse 21 and Acts chapter 9 verse 22. We don't know how long he remained in Arabia only that after three years, Saul was back in Jerusalem. And after his time in the desert, he returned to Damascus, but he didn't remain there long. For the city became too dangerous for him to remain. And his escape from Damascus was not exactly glorious, which we'll see in the next message. Perhaps the whole idea seems pretty incredible to you. You know that you've made mistakes in your life. You may have even done some horrible things. Perhaps you leave a trail of ruined lives and blown opportunities behind you. Even so, God offers you a new beginning. Jesus paid for your past. He paid for your past when he died on the cross. His blood was shed for your sin. The Bible is clear. If you will trust him, if you will put your confidence in his work on the cross and let him lead your life in the present, you can be made new. You won't be perfect, but you won't be running from God anymore. If you've never made such a commitment, I'd invite you right now, let's all bow together in prayer. Would you, as an act of honest faith, turn to the Lord and say something like this? This is not a magic formula. Just something like this. Lord Jesus, I've run from you. I 
have ignored your love and I've rejected your commands. I've been trusting my own goodness rather than your grace. And today, I turn to you. I put my confidence in what you did for me. Please change my heart. Cleanse me and make me new. Place your spirit within me. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Like Paul, may I become one of your followers. Begin your work in me, I pray. Amen.